This morning, we'll be looking at both the sections of Scripture that Mark has brilliantly read for us this morning. I'm going to focus mostly on the Magnificat, on Mary's song, on Mary's response to Elizabeth and to what God has done in her her life. Um, This song is a a profoundly fascinating part of, of Scripture. It's profoundly radical in so many different ways in how it sees the kingdom of God, but also in how she expresses her faith and responds to the deeds of God and the promises of God. As I've looked into this and contemplated it, one of the things that's really struck me is that, if I'm honest, I I wish I was a lot more like Mary. And how she sees God, her own circumstances, and his work. She is, in that sense, a great example to us, standing alongside, if not equal, certainly equally, if not um, above many of the people that we consider great examples of faith, because she shows, as she expresses this, and as, as her story is told in Scripture, one who has a great faith in God and his promises. And actually, when you consider the song and the ministry that her son would soon embark on, one who perceived the kingdom of God and its manifestation in this world in a much clearer way than most others did. In fact, in a much clearer way than even John the Baptist would. So I want us to have a look at some of what she's expressing this morning. And um, we're going to contrast that somewhat with some of what John expresses as well. So this is a song of praise. It's a song that begins with praise, responding to Elizabeth as well. And she, she begins this by lifting up the name of God. There is clear praise and wonder and joy at what God is doing. We see her great faith in this because she speaks of what God is doing, but also that in her, and because of what God is doing and through her, sorry, all nations will call her blessed. She takes that time to recognize the holiness of God and also that he is a merciful God. What really struck me about this song is that it's the kind of things that we perhaps express at those high moments in our spiritual life. And if I'm honest, I often consider that that the high moments of my spiritual life, certainly when I feel close to God, but it's often when life is somewhat simple and somewhat clear and we comprehend what's going on around us. Our paths seem straight. And we have some understanding or idea of what God is doing in the midst of our life and where he is taking us to. When we're in that space, we we can often relate to these kind of words and maybe even express them ourselves. But one of the things that really struck me about this is when it comes to 
just the, the cultural and, and sociological element of, of Mary's life. She wasn't necessarily in that kind of place. In many ways, you could argue that Mary sings this song, it's sung from a place of discomfort. Because Mary is one who has had this remarkable encounter with God and depending on how well known it is in her town and in her family, she is not likely to be one who is known as blessed at this point in her life. If I was to ask you the question of how many people would believe her statement that she is pregnant by immaculate conception, how likely do you think the village would be to believe that story? Rather unlikely, I would guess. In some ways, God took Mary from a place of certainty. Her life was in many ways mapped out for her. What she was going to do, who she was going to be, who she was going to marry, what that life would look like with Joseph, who was a carpenter. And he took her to a place of uncertainty. She was to have this child, the son of God. She would become pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would Joseph believe her? Well, we know the answer to that, but it never tells us how others responded to her. But it took her to a place where actually it was more likely that one of the things that would surround her would be the shame put on her by the judgment of others. She would be seen as one who had done something likely immoral. No doubt shunned by many, perhaps even members of her own family. And yet in that space, she sings this song, a song of faith, a song of hope, a song of joy, a song of peace, a song of wonder, a song of great faith because if her experience up to that moment had been shame and judgment, she proclaims, for behold, from now on all nations Oh, generations, sorry, will call me blessed. A song of praise sung from a place which could be considered discomfort. But you see no lament in Mary's song. <coughs> and it's for reasons like that that I wish I was a lot more like Mary. Mary is one who clearly trusts the promises of God and this is why she can sing this song. She sees what God is doing. She knows and believes that something amazing is happening. She trusts that God is faithful to his promises. I wish I was a bit more like that. I don't know about you. When we are taken to a place of discomfort or uncertainty, is our song 
a lament? Or do we find hope in the promises and goodness of God? I can tell you that for me, it's often far more, my song is often far more Radiohead than it is Bon Jovi. It's far more the lament than living on a prayer. The truth is, we, I, can be prone to forgetting the promises of God. Forgetting his goodness, his faithfulness. Forgetting that he says he will always be with us. When we know those truths and promises, when we take hold of them, there is great peace and joy to be found. Sometimes even when there should actually only be lament. And this season, this time Advent, proves radically that God follows through on what he says he's going to do. All the promises that God would give through the prophets and through the Psalms and, and, and through a variety of different ways in the Old Testament, he fulfilled in the most remarkable way that could ever have been imagined because he didn't just send somebody. He came as someone. God would come into this world as the Messiah and fulfill himself all that he would promise. In many ways, there was nothing safe, really, about what God did. He came into the world as that babe born in the stable, one perhaps much like what Sheena had shown a while ago, born in humility, born in, in any human terms, vulnerability. He would live the life of a, of a young boy growing up with his mother and his stepfather. And he would embark on a ministry which would lead him into the... the, the into conflict in many ways with the powers around him, which he recognised weren't as they should be. He wouldn't accept the status quo. He taught a different way. And that God came personally and would die to save his people before taking up his life again after three days to prove that everything he said and did was true, complete and finished. Advent brings us to that place of hope. Brings us to a place like Mary was in as she sings this song. Brings us to a place that we often need to find ourselves resting in. But can be so prone to wandering from. Advent is hope. Because Jesus is hope. A hope that we all need so desperately. So Mary sings this song and it's a song of faith, a song of hope, a song of worship and adoration because she believes in the promises of God and rejoices in seeing them fulfilled in her life. In many ways in her very body as Jesus grows and forms within her. But she doesn't just sing a song of praise. She recognises that what God is doing, what God is embarking on, is something unique. It is something different. In many ways, what God is about to do through Jesus Christ is a holy revolution. 
That is what is about to take place. But not in any of the human terms that we understand it, no, in a much more fundamental and much more radical and much more powerful way than we could ever comprehend it. Because Mary moves on from this praise to express that what God is doing, he's shown strength with his arm. This is verses 51 to 55. He has scattered the proud in, their thought, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's song is also a remarkably radical song. This is a song that has actually found itself banned in some places. A bit of information about it during the British rule in India, the Magnifica was forbidden from being sung in church. In the 1980s, Guatemala's government discovered Mary's words about God's preferential love for the poor to be too dangerous and revolutionary. The song would be creating quite a stir in their impoverished, impoverished masses. They were inspiring. First, the government banned them. In the similar way, the mothers of Plaza de Mayo, whose children all disappeared during the dirty war, placed Magnifica's words on posters throughout the capital. The military of Argentina outlawed any public display of Mary's song. The song isn't about the status quo. The song is about change. I love the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he contemplates what Mary says. He says, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we see sometimes in paintings. This is none of the sweet, nostalgic or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. And it is instead a hard, strong, inoxorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Mary's song reflects what Jesus' ministry would become because the kingdom isn't something tame that walks hand in hand with the world. The kingdom is God planting something different right in the heart of the world. It is God's ways, his light breaking into the world in a remarkable new way. And as I reflected on what Mary said, and let it take me to actually what Jesus himself would say when he speaks of his ministry in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. As I contemplated words such as those, I find myself asking the question, William, do we dilute some of what the kingdom represents so that it is more appealing to us and to the world that we inhabit? For we cannot get away from the truth of what Mary says here, the, the countercultural nature of it and how Jesus would then express that same vision in his ministry as well. So often as Christians, we can find ourselves talking about a world and sin, and yet we do not see that to change that, to change that culture, a holy, 
revolution is in fact required, not one of violence or the weapons of this world, absolutely not, but of the ways of God and the traits of Jesus Christ. A complete course correction is required in that sense because this kingdom is not merely radical, it also flips values as well. The Tyndale Commentary states that this song reflects a complete reversal of expressed human values. It's a song which reflects a kingdom which is not like the cultures that we are lifted out from. That's why it's heralded with this call to repent, to recognise something new has come, to turn away in response, for there to be change and sorrow and enter in that place of grace. God sees things very differently to the world around us, to be honest to how we see things. And when Mary expresses this in song, what is there is something that can be considered a threat to the powerful. Perhaps this is why the saints in the past have been able to stare into the face of some of the most corrupt powers, powers more dangerous than the ones that we face today, and they didn't blink. Because they knew the nature of God and his kingdom. It's one which calls for a radical change in how we perceive our values and and, and how we live out our ethics. One which calls for response because the kingdom of God has drawn near. We must be careful never to come to a place where we assume that the kingdom's values and the world's simply run in tandem together. For that's not what we see in how Mary expresses this kingdom and how Jesus would live it out. It's the kingdom that calls us to a radical new adventure. Not ultimately, fundamentally based on our ability to comprehend it and be it, although those things matter, but based on the grace of God and his invitation and the empowering of his spirit. The kingdom remains the same, a reflection of the king. It has not changed and it will not change. Its ethic remains today and its values are those of God himself. The kingdom has come because the king came himself. And yes, we wait. We wait for that king to return and for all that's spoken of to be fulfilled completely. But we wait. We wait with the power of the Holy Spirit to recreate us into kingdom citizens, not merely by name or by right, but by ethic and value too. We're all on that journey together. Jesus' ministry was one which showed these kind of things and how he ministered. Jesus would bless the rejected. He would challenge the powerful. He welcomed the unclean and he rejected those who considered themselves holy. He embraced the poor and he would challenge the rich. He called for the first to be last and the last to be first. And he would say to his disciples and to us that the greatest would be the servant of all. That's the way of the kingdom of God and what a paradigm shift that requires in 
how we perceive values. Because it isn't tame. It isn't a bit like this, but just a wee bit different. It's something other, something holy, a, a holy new way. Here in part, the part that we live in now, but yet to be fully realised. It's different. But it's given to us, for us to be part of. And what we see is, especially when we look to John, is that it can be a kingdom that's misunderstood as well. I find John's question to be one which is profoundly significant, actually, in that regard. Because John asks this question of Jesus, which is really significant. Now, when John was in prison, it says, I'm home and now more on Matthew 11, and he heard about the deeds of the Christ. He sent words by his disciple and says to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we go and look for another? A really significant question, actually, that John asks at this point in time. John is asking for clarification. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he actually the Messiah? Or should he be looking for someone else? Because what John perceived the kingdom to be, when you look at him speaking about Jesus and the winnowing fork and judgment and vengeance occurring, these things are not unfolding perhaps in the way that John expected them to. He anticipated that judgment to come. But Jesus isn't doing it in the way that he anticipated judgment is occurring. But it's occurring against the powers and the cultures and the corrupt leaders. It's occurring against oppression and rejection. And instead he's inviting sinners to come to him and receive forgiveness. That perhaps isn't how John anticipated things unfolding. Perhaps John would anticipate that judgment would occur quickly and that he would escape this king who's holding him prisoner. He would perhaps escape the perverse death that he would have to experience at the hands of that foolish king. But that's not how it unfolded. And Jesus' answer to John is extremely interesting because Jesus doesn't enter into John's terms. He answers John according to Jesus' own terms and says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus articulates his ministry back to those disciples of John and sends them away with an answer that they probably already had considering it begins talking about the deeds of the Christ. Jesus answers John's disciples in line with Mary's song. He answers it in line with what he says in Luke 4. For this is what his kingdom is here to do. It is Jesus' kingdom. He is the king inaugurating this kingdom in the world. And he answers actually that question in line with God's heart. I want to read two Psalms to us this morning. And just a bit of these. Psalm 146, I'm going to read a few verses. 5 to 10, it says this. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord their God, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, 
who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. And Psalm 72, 1 to 7 says, Give the king your justice, O God, your righteousness to the king's son. May judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people, the hills and the hills in righteousness. May you defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. May you live while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May you be like rain that falls on moan grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day, may righteousness and peace abound until the moon is no more. Jesus expresses, embodies, and inaugurates into this world a kingdom which is in line with the ways and heart of his Father. Mary sings it. Jesus proclaims it, then lives it and embodies it. And it's clear and it's blatant. And I ask the question then to close what is our understanding of the kingdom of God? How do we perceive it? How do we live the reality of it? The great joy for Mary and for John, certainly earlier, was that God had fulfilled his promises. The kingdom had come and had drawn near. They both saw that somewhat differently. But for us, do we find the great joy of that, that God came in love to rescue the world, that God would and does fulfill his promises? Do we find hope in that when our lives are taken to that place of discomfort and uncertainty? And I'm asking myself that question too. Is our song a song of praise or lament when the challenges of life come or do we find strength in the stronghold that the Psalms proclaim God to be. Advent takes us back to those precious truths of a king of love who came to rescue us. But that king then as we declare him Lord of our lives makes us residents of his kingdom. A different kingdom. A kingdom which we are prone to misunderstand. A kingdom which John, it seems, could misunderstand. A kingdom which calls us to make a mighty paradigm shift on the basis of love and justice and mercy and compassion because Jesus has conquered sin and death, the devil, the enemy. He's defeated it all. And calls us into his kingdom in which that truth becomes our precious reality. What does the kingdom mean for us this morning? What does the ways of God mean for us this morning? The kingdom is our hope. Because the king of that kingdom is our saviour. But he is equally our Lord. Whose example we desire to follow and whose kingdom we pray to see 
emulated and embodied in our life, in our churches, and ultimately, as much as God would empower in his world as well. That is why Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us not be pessimists, but optimists, because Jesus is Lord. He is victorious, and his kingdom is here. It's in you, and it's in me. It's a kingdom of hope, empowered by a God of hope, that's defeated the devil, that's defeated sin. Because Jesus rose again. Let's pray that that kingdom transforms and continues that work of making a paradigm shift in how we see ourselves, how we see our world, how we see our nation, how we see strangers and refugees, and even how we see our enemies themselves. Let's pray. You are that God of grace and justice, You are a God whose ways are not our ways. But we thank you so much that through the power of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the presence and invitation of the Father, they are becoming more our ways. Thank you, Lord. But we pray, gathering together this morning, recognizing that there is much still to be done there, Lord. And humility. But with obviousness, we can say that. But we thank you that the foundation is not our endeavors or greatness or our ability to be holy or to comprehend these things. We learn them in fellowship and by abiding in you. But the foundation is the work of Jesus Christ finished by his death and resurrection done through love and mercy and grace for each of us. The work is done. The kingdom is here. Help us, Father, to live as a people of hope whose song is increasingly one of praise and not lament. Help us, Father, to see and to to keep hold of that hope increasingly in our lives. But help us to see too, Lord, that that hope is embodied in a kingdom that's not of this world that calls us to be your ambassadors, your representatives before those with whom we have the privilege of living our lives. So this Advent, Father, as we look to Jesus and remember and rejoice in hope, may others see a little bit, a little glimmer of that hope, that light, that love, that truth, that justice, that holiness, that grace and mercy of God who is our Father by how we live. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to close by singing a song that is a triumphant song. Triumphant not because we have got it all sorted, but because Jesus is our Saviour. We're going to sing together.